0: Psalm 147, we'll be reading the first six verses. This is God's word. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Psalm 147 is a song of praise to God. But did you notice that it begins with a declaration of praise to praise itself? Verse 1 again. Praise the Lord for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant or it is delightful. The original Hebrew says. And a song of praise is fitting. Do you know that joy? Do you know that pleasure? We live for pleasure. Everything we do in life is seeking after pleasure, and it's not necessarily wrong to live for pleasure. The issue is, where do you find your pleasure? Where do you find your satisfaction? And the psalmist is exhorting us to say, find your greatest joy, your greatest satisfaction in worshiping the God who created you and the God who redeemed you. When Christ is exalted and when he's worshipped from the heart, And the Spirit of God is present. Worship happens and there is no greater joy, no greater pleasure. And it is what our hope of our eternal existence is all about, to see the face of God and to worship him. The historical context of Psalm 147, I think, is significant. Uh, We can't be absolutely sure, but... There's amazing agreement among commentators about when they think this psalm was written. It was probably written during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. You remember those days after the two-generation-long captivity in Babylon where they were humiliated, defeated, beaten, oppressed, taken away, kept as captives in a foreign land. And after the 70 years were finished, the Lord sent his people back to Jerusalem. And one of the reasons, one of the number of reasons why they think this psalm was written on that occasion when the city was being rebuilt or maybe even at the point where the walls were finished around the city, the reason they think that this psalm might have been written for that occasion is partially because of what it says there in verse 2 where it says, The Lord builds up Jerusalem. As a reminder to the people, it's the Lord who builds up Jerusalem. Even as the walls come up, even as the temple is rebuilt, even as their homes are being rebuilt, this is the grace of God at work, is what the psalmist is saying. You know, they had struggled to praise God while they were in captivity. If you just go back a few psalms, back to Psalm 137, there it's an interesting contrast because that psalm was written while they were in captivity. And let me just read you the first few verses of Psalm 137. It says, By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And that's a struggle that I think we all as believers living as sinners in a fallen world can identify with. How do we praise the Lord while we're suffering under oppression, trials, difficulties, brokenness? How do we worship the Lord while we're still suffering? It's interesting. If you flip ahead to uh, in history, not in your scripture, you actually go back to the book of Nehemiah. There's a description of that worship service on the day in which the walls were finished under the great leadership of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 12, I'll read one verse from the beginning of that worship service and then one verse from the end, uh, just to give you a sense of that glorious day. Verse 27 of Nehemiah 12 says, And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And then it goes on to describe how they arranged one great choir on one wall and another great choir on the other wall, and they had this wonderful call-and-response worship and just a joyous day. And here's the summary of it, skipping down to verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. What a worship service that must have been. What it would have been like to have been delivered from that kind of slavery, captivity, suffering, and to be standing in the newly rebuilt walls of Jerusalem, worshiping at the temple praising God for his deliverance. But you know what? You don't have to wait until deliverance comes to worship. And quite honestly, I think the most powerful worship, the worship that gives the greatest witness to the glory of God, is worship that comes from the depths of your soul while you're still in the midst of suffering and brokenness. And so how does that happen? Because that kind of suffering is not natural to the flesh. That's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. But how does it happen? The psalmist here in Psalm 147, I think, gives us a sense of how it happens. It happens in stages, so to speak. The first stage is to acknowledge your need. As you come into the presence of God to worship Him, you need to come in already acknowledging Your need before Him. Look at how the faithful remnant views itself in this Jerusalem worship service. Look at verses 2 and 3. They call themselves the outcasts. Literally in the Hebrew it says those that are pushed down or pushed aside. Those that have been cast aside or beat up by the bullies of this life, whether they're real and physical or whether they're real and spiritual. The brokenhearted, they call themselves. Jesus would later call these same people the meek, the poor in spirit. Those that grieve over their own sin and the sins of others. And then finally they call themselves the wounded. People that are beat up and abused outwardly and or inwardly. I'm convinced that probably the biggest reason why we come into a sanctuary to worship and then walk out unsatisfied, feeling like we haven't really worshipped, feeling like we missed something, feeling unsatisfied in general, probably the most common reason for that is that we didn't come into the sanctuary with a sense of our need. That we came into the sanctuary feeling self-confident, popular, pretty, wealthy, Able, not prepared to worship, in other words. Johnny Erickson tells a story. She, As you know Johnny, if you know Johnny and her ministry, she's a paraplegic herself, and she has a ministry taking uh, wheelchairs and equipment like that into poor countries, third-world countries, to people that need them there that never get them. And she tells a story of going to the country of Ghana. And one of the pastors there in Ghana took... Johnny to meet one of his parishioners and they went to one of the streets in the city and went to a tarp that had been propped up on the sidewalk in the city and the pastor lifted up the flap on the tarp and they went underneath and there Johnny met a young crippled woman named Amma and Johnny just to take make a very long story short I just never forget how she described Amma's greeting she said Amma looked at Johnny smiled this huge smile and said to Johnny, Welcome to Ghana, Johnny, where our God is bigger because we need Him so much. Now that may not be theologically uh, accurate, but in perceptive reality, in our perception, isn't it certainly true that the more we're aware of our need of God, the bigger He shows Himself to be. And the less we feel we need Him, the more blind we are to his glory. So the first stage is to acknowledge your need. Praise begins when pride stops. Praise begins when you come to the end of yourself and you give up self reliance. Listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 57 For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God dwells with those who are lowly in spirit, acknowledging their need and dependence upon him and pride blocks the entrance to the presence of God. And so as we come to worship, that's the first stage. Acknowledge your need and dependence no matter what you may look like to the world as you walk in. But the second is second step is to not keep your focus you don't want to focus on your need as you come to as you actually step into worship. You having acknowledged your need, then you place your focus upon the one you've come to worship. Because that's what worship is. Great worship, and those of you that have experienced great worship, I guarantee you that if it was truly great worship, as God defines great worship, maybe not what you sensed as great worship, but what God would define as great worship, if you've experienced it, it's not because of when you worshipped, or where you worshipped, or in what style you worshipped, it was because of the focus of your worship. That's my job, that's Doug's job, that's anybody's job that's up here leading in worship. It's the job of the music team is to, as best as possible, through his divine word, through his revealed truth in his word, to present to you the multifaceted glory of the God who created us and redeemed us so that having been confronted with his glory, your regenerated, redeemed heart can respond in love, thankfulness, and adoration. But the particular focus here in Psalm 147, because these are people that have just learned this lesson in captivity, the focus of his character that they bring to mind first is his compassion. They say, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. They don't praise King Cyrus of Persia, who was the one who issued the decree that freed up the captives, the faithful remnant, to return to Jerusalem. They're not praising King Cyrus. They're not praising Ezra, their great spiritual leader, who brought the word of God to bring this renovation, this revival, this restoration of God's people. They're not praising Nehemiah, the great engineer who led the rebuilding of the walls. They're not praising any of these men. They're saying that this, the rebuilding of their homes, the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the walls, is a work of God's grace that we didn't deserve. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. But notice how when they get specific about that work of building up Jerusalem, it gets very personal. They say, He gathers the outcasts. There's a tenderness to that language. He gathers the outcasts like a... elsewhere in scripture, like a hen gathers its chicks. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. Do you see the image of our great God? It's our great God is this loving physician who humbles himself, condescends to bow down in front of his people, to dress their wounds, to put salve on their wounds, to add the medicine, to put the bandage on, to very gently and lovingly begin to heal their brokenness, their wounds, their hurts. We're all broken. We don't like to show that to the world. But we're all very, very broken people. We've been wounded by our own sins. We've been wounded by the sins of everyone around us. We've been wounded by poor parenting and rebellious children. We've been wounded by broken relationships and failures in our calling. And when you come into worship with being honest, transparent, open, saying, this is who I am, in worship, God kneels down to gently, lovingly apply the salve and the medicine and put the bandage on the wounds to heal you. Because He loves you that much. It's a picture of incredible tenderness. And most of our real healing needs to take place inside. But it's interesting. Do you notice there's almost a jarring transition between verse 3 and verse 4. Because what the psalmist is teaching us here is that as you come in to worship, acknowledging your tremendous need before this great and holy God and focusing first of all upon that tender, loving, covenant compassion he has for his people, notice how he very quickly and abruptly shifts it almost to the point where it feels like We miss something. Is there a transition missing here? How does he go from talking about this loving care of our Lord for our wounds to all of a sudden talking about the night skies? That's what he says in verse 4. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. You see what he's doing? He's shifting the focus from the compassion of our God to the power and sovereignty of our God. And boy, when you put those two aspects of our God's character together, that's what you really need for healing. He focuses upon the power and wisdom of God. He talks about the stars. How many stars are there in the heavens? I went online. I had no idea. A lot. I went online. And you have to check back every couple of months because scientists keep finding more. And as our technology improves, we keep finding more and more and more stars. Latest estimate of how many stars there are in the heavens? 300 sextillion. When's the last time you used that number in ordinary common speech? I didn't really have any grasp of what sextillion meant. So I uh, looked it up, and they told me that the number sextillion, that is, One, three, followed by 23 zeros. Okay, I I started to get a sense of the immensity of that number. And then they said, well, you know, but still, it's just a little too out there. I I need a little more specificity on what that number means. It's three trillion, which I do have a vague concept of how big three trillion might be. Three trillion times 100 billion. Well, that's the best I can do for you this morning. It's a number we can't get inside our brains. That's how many stars there are in the heavens. And it's not just the number of them, but science tells us that in the observable universe, which acknowledges there's an unobservable universe out there, in the observable universe, the diameter of that universe is 93 billion light years. I can't even comprehend one light year, let alone 93 billion of them. It does kind of beg a question, and my four-year-old son, my oldest son when he was four years old, which was a long time ago, he, I think, phrased the question the best I've ever heard it. He, We were coming home from a high school football game, and we got out of the car, and we lived out in the country then, and you could actually see the stars in the heavens, and, and it, that night they were just spectacular. And uh, I took him out into the field next to the garage, and pointed to the sky and I said, you know, Seth, look at the stars. God put those there. Isn't he amazing? And he asked the obvious question, Daddy, why did God put the stars so far away? You know, and it's one of those both father and pastor moments where you're trying to combine, you know, sensitivity and understanding of your a four-year-old's mind with theology that's beyond the greatest biblical scholar and i'm contemplating all that and saying um and, and my wife walked up behind us and i heard her voice say to show us how big he is and i said that's it that's exactly why he did it to show us how big he is and that's the god who loves us and cares for us god's compassion for us as hurting and broken people may be very comforting and it is but it's ultimately meaningless unless he's also all-powerful and sovereign over all things, and that's what the, that's the message the psalmist is trying to communicate here by talking about the stars. It's actually interestingly the same message that the prophet Isaiah gave to this faithful remnant before they went into captivity. So turn the clock back 70, 80 years, and Isaiah preaches this message to these people before they entered into the suffering as the judgment was about to fall that was going to lead to all this suffering. This is what Isaiah said. And listen carefully to these words. It's the same message. Verse, uh, chapter 40 of Isaiah, verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created all of these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount up like wings, with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. The psalmist is reminding the people of God, even in the midst of beginning to rejoice in their deliverance, that God is greater than their problems. Sarah was told that she could have a child when she was well past childbearing age, and she laughed at the idea. And God said to Abraham, Why is Sarah laughing? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Some of you need to memorize that scripture today. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're going through. I know you're suffering to one degree or another. But nothing is too hard for the Lord. But not only is He bigger than whatever problem we're facing, He's bigger than our enemies. That's really the hidden message in this reference to the stars because it was the Babylonians that had caused this suffering for all these years. The Babylonians were their hated pagan enemies. And who did the Babylonians worship? They worshiped the stars. Did you catch the hidden message? Not only, you know, the Babylonians thought that the stars controlled life on earth. And the psalmist is saying, we serve the God who created the stars, and he named the stars. And he particularly mentions naming the stars because how did Adam first show his dominion over the world in obedience to God's commandment? He named the animals. Because it's an act of dominion. And that's what the psalmist is saying about God. He not only created the stars, he has dominion over the stars. And those stupid pagan Babylonians are worshipping the stars. But you know the God who created them. That's why in verse 5 the psalmist says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. And that same God cares for you. It's an argument that the Bible uses very, very often. It's called the argument from the greater to the lesser. If God cares about something so great, then surely he must care about something that's much smaller. It actually turns the typical unbeliever argument upside down, doesn't it? Where you hear many, many people out there in the world saying, well, if there is a God... And he created a world this vast and this complicated. There's no way that he even pays any attention to my puny, insignificant life. That's not what the, that's not the conclusion the psalmist came to from that. He's saying, hey, if God created and named and controls the stars, don't you think that he can handle your problems in life? And guess what? You're created in his image. You're redeemed by the blood of his son. And he loves you with a tenderness that was described earlier in the psalm. Jesus made the same point in the opposite way, and it's kind of interesting to look at those back to back. We talked about the argument from the greater to the lesser. Jesus turned it around and made an argument from the lesser to the greater. Over in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 29, this is what Jesus taught. He said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Do you see how he turns the argument around and makes the same point? If God cares about those little sparrows out in the yard, doesn't he care about you? His redeemed child made in his image? And think about it. The point that Jesus is making, put together with the point that Isaiah and the psalmist is making, is that the same God who created and numbers the stars, not a single one of them is missing, knows the number of hairs on your head. If that doesn't put you on your knees in worship, I've done all I can do. That's what leads you to worship. And it actually there's actually one more point that the psalmist makes, and there he sets the table for the gospel. He states one of the major themes of Scripture that's repeated over and over and over and over from beginning to end. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. It's humility and acknowledging of your need, particularly your need of a Savior, that first ushers you into the presence of the Creator. God resists the proud and the self-reliant, but gives grace to the humble and the needy. And the power and the compassion of God, if that's what drives us to worship, then the power and compassion of God together is portrayed nowhere more clearly than at the cross of Jesus Christ. Where the Creator took upon Himself human flesh, took upon the nature of a servant, and went to the cross to die in our place for our sins. Bearing the wrath of God. Taking all the ugliness of our sin on himself and bearing the wrath that those sins deserve so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. There's a great song that was written by Phil Kage many years ago based on a poem. Let me just read that poem to you because I think it expresses this more clearly than I ever could. The maker of the universe as man for man was made a curse. The claims of law which he had made, unto the uttermost he paid. His holy fingers made the bough which grew the thorns that crowned his brow. The nails that pierced his hands were mined in secret places he designed. He made the forest whence there sprung the tree on which his body hung. He died upon a cross of wood, yet made the hill on which it stood. The sky that darkened o'er his head by him above the earth was spread. The sun that hid from him its face by his decree was poised in space. The spear which spilled his precious blood was tempered in the fires of God. The grave in which his form was laid was hewn in rocks his hands had made. The throne on which he now appears was his for everlasting years. But a new glory crowns his brow and every knee to him shall bow. True worship is finding your greatest delight in the presence of this God. Delighting in His power and His grace. Delighting in His compassion and His sovereignty. Praising Him as your Creator and your Redeemer. You see, we worship God, not His gifts. And He will often take away His gifts to teach us, to find our satisfaction and joy in Him and not in what He's given. And there is no greater lesson He can teach us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We praise You for Your grace. Lord, with our hearts which have been regenerated by Your power and grace, we now offer up to You praise. And we pray that it would linger in our minds and our hearts and our souls in the days of this week to come. May Christ be glorified in us. Thank you for all you've done for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.